House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Welcome to Capital Ideas. This is the podcast where members of the majority House Democrats in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. Today's conversation is one I've wanted to have since Capital Ideas launched as a podcast back in 2009. Our guest today is Representative Frank Chop. If that sounds odd to you like it does to me, it's because for two solid decades, from 1999 through 2019, he was Speaker Frank Chop, as in Speaker of the House. He's been a state and national leader in affordable housing, behavioral health, K-12 education and higher education, child care, health care, job creation, and a whole lot of other things designed to make the Evergreen State the best place in the nation to live, work, and raise a family. We recorded this on Friday, January 19th, the 14th day of Washington's 2024 legislative session. The good part starts right now. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Frank Chop. It sounds kind of odd to say Representative Frank Chop yeah, yeah. because for 20 years it was Speaker Frank Chop, and we're going to talk about both of those people. Uh, I'm really glad to have you finally on Capital Ideas. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it, Dan. Usually when I start one of these things, it's pretty easy because what I do is I look at a person's last two or three newsletters, and I look at some of the bills they've sponsored, and a couple of things will stand out. And that's that's kind of who they are legislatively. You've done so much that uh, it's really hard to know where to start. So I want to find out, what do you want to talk about today? Well, I can talk about all sorts of issues. I'm really uh, excited about this session, as I have been for the last many sessions. We're really making progress on so many fronts. And uh, I guess you could uh, say that housing is obviously a priority of the entire legislature this year, as well as for myself. So we're making real progress in that um, and, and trying to see how different fields link up with each other. For example, a couple of years ago, we passed Apple Health and Homes, which is to make this revolutionary idea of linking healthcare with housing. I mean, it's, it's an obvious concept, but, and basically the program is uh, essentially uh, a prescription for a home. I would like to read a quote from you oh, about no. this particular <laughs> program. I saw it and it struck me and I thought, this is so simple and so obvious and so logical that it's probably going to go over a lot of people's heads. If you're homeless because of your medical condition, then you should have a home as part of your medical treatment. That's it. That's pretty simple. It is. And we do it for other situations. Like, you know, when you're older and and have disabilities, uh, sometimes you need to go into a nursing home. And we have other folks who are of different ages um, that um, are homeless in large part because of their mental health issues or substance use disorder or a major physical disability. And so folks who go into the emergency room or in some cases into the jails and uh, they get some treatment and then they're discharged out to the street again, that's not good for their health uh, or their future. In many cases, they suffer and die. And at the same time, it's it's a burden on the rest of the community, like local businesses, you know, the 
sidewalks are sometimes blocked or, you know, that kind of thing. And this is something that, that we're implementing right now that will save lives, but also save a ton of money because the cost of having somebody in an emergency room is very expensive. Also, having people out literally lying on the streets, suffering, is not good for local businesses. And so it's a very simple concept, but now we're into implementation. You know, a lot of legislators think, well, you know, we'll pass a bill. We'll, we, we addressed it. No, 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 no. Passing a bill is one thing. That's one step, an important step. But now implementing it. So we're working very hard for specific housing projects uh, to actually house and as uh, a whole lot of folks who are now on the Apple Health and Homes program. It's the way to really deal with chronic homelessness. This other stuff that's been going on, it's been very disconcerting to see the lack of progress with certain other organizations. And if you boil it down, the future in terms of addressing homelessness is to make that tie to healthcare. I remember well over 15 years ago, there was a 10-year plan to end homelessness in Seattle. And obviously that hasn't worked out perfectly yet. This could be a really important tool in that kit. Yes, but part of it is the message. You should never promise to end anything. I mean, we spend billions on law enforcement. Have we ended crime? Of course not. We spend billions on cancer research. Uh, Have we cured cancer? Well, we're making progress, but we're not, you know. And uh, there's other areas like that where we invest a lot of money, but uh, we invest billions in education. Is everybody... uh, well-educated? No. Not, not quite. So don't make the promise. I told him that uh, 15 years ago. I said, stop making those promises. Just do a lot of effort, get as much done as possible. And then after you get something done, then you could say, hey, yes, we built these uh, 200 units for the homeless or this uh, tiny old village for the homeless. There it is. People are being housed. They're being treated, maybe at the local community health clinic. That's when to talk about it, but don't make these sweeping statements. We're going to end it because invariably the other politicians, they just waste the opportunity. They make the public declaration, but then they don't fall through to do it. Then it looks like a failure. And other people can point fingers at it and say, see, that was a waste of money and time. Total message disaster. And we should be much more constructive saying, look, it's a serious issue. We have ideas. We have sites. We have projects. We're going to make progress. And then talk about the progress we're making, not, oh, at the first, we're going to end homelessness. That's absurd. I want to mention something that, I don't know, it might embarrass you because of the attention, but I just learned that there's an affordable apartment yeah. building in Bremerton where you grew up called Frank Chop Place. Yeah, yeah. Was that part of the Apple Health and oh, Homes? No. no, this is years ago. In fact, um, I think I might have been born in that building. And so I made that comment to a nonprofit uh, agency, and so they ended up naming the damn building after me. But it used to be the old Harrison Memorial Hospital in West Bremerton. Now, to set the record straight, I was born in East Bremerton, okay? It's a big difference. Anyway, so, I mean... <laughs> You're across the water. You know, a big rivalry. You know, now the high school has been combined, but there was the East High School that I went to, and then there's a West High School, and it used to be a rivalry. But anyway, yes, it used to be the old hospital, and... A nonprofit agency bought the old hospital and renovated it, and then, then, then he named it after me, which I didn't ask for, by the way. But it, I didn't uh, think you did, no, but no. I was very happy to see that. Well, yeah, and uh, but every once in a while I, <laughs> I hear about it, and I said, uh, well, I didn't ask to be named, that it named after me, but yeah, I'm proud of that. 
We've helped so many housing efforts all over the state. Even right now, I have 30 major projects going on in King County for almost 7,000 homes being built. I'm we sure. call it Homes and Hope because the uh, home stands for the housing, but then and hope, that stands for the early learning centers that are on site or the uh, health clinic on site or a training program on site. It's not just for housing. That's only one part of our lives. The rest of it, uh, we need childcare sometimes or medical attention, or we need to go to a training program or whatever. So these are multi-purpose programs that are going on. And so, yeah, Frank Chop Place is one of <laughs> a lot of projects I've helped. This this ties in two things that, that, are, that go way back with you, because I know that when you first started here at the legislature, you, you were coming from a a career as a housing activist and a and a poverty fighter. Right. And that's exactly what the home and hope combined. Well, with our uh, slogan back there before I was in the legislature, uh, it was the Fremont Public Association, but our slogan was freedom from poverty through action. And the reason we picked freedom as the first word is that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had the four freedoms. And one of the freedoms was a freedom from want. So let us talk about freedom which is sometimes uh, a uh, complicated uh, political statement when you talk about freedom. Well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, we ought to have freedom on many fronts, including freedom from poverty. And the only way we get there is to figure out what to do and do it, have some action. That's where the activist part comes yeah, in. Yeah, I can't help myself. One of our latest housing efforts is to provide more funding for what we call recovery residences. So we have sites and projects going on right now to buy existing buildings uh, like uh, big single-family homes or uh, small apartment buildings to provide housing for folks who are recovering. That's a great project. In Shelton, a tiny home community just opened up for veterans. Uh, I drive by it twice a day at least. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And we went to the grand opening back in June, my wife and I. Terrific little place. I wish it could be 100 times bigger. Well, you know how that came about? When I was parking my car one day years ago, Tim Sheldon, the senator from that area, uh, walks up to me and says, hey, Frank, um, how, could you help fund uh, uh, this village in uh, the Shelton area? Uh, I guess it's a tiny old village, he said. I said, okay. So I went back <laughs> and got the money for it, put it in the budget, and voila. So I'm very happy to hear that it worked. And it's a very simple subject. I mean, it's a hell of a lot better to be in a tiny home uh, with a roof over your head, with uh, you know a heater and lock on the door, lock on the door. Some very simple things make a world of difference. That is not for everybody, but it is good for many people, and it's better than suffering, wet and and dis, uh, disenchanted on the streets, on the sidewalk. So it's uh, yeah. it's very much so. So we've been doing many tiny home villages, including we funded uh, one in Vancouver where a local nonprofit stepped forward and said, we want to help the homeless. And so I put money in the capital budget for, uh, you know, with Steve Theringer's uh, strong support, by the way, he's the capital budget chair. Guess what? It happened. The no nonprofit uh, said, yes, we want to house the homeless. And they looked around and said, who could build this for us? And they found a manufacturer who's building smaller homes or in some cases cottages for any population, not just the homeless. So they linked up with this uh, factory owner in Battleground. So there's housing for the homeless being built in Battleground through a for-profit factory 
And those cottages are now helping the homeless. There's 22 cottages there. And it's a complete, utter success. And the cost per unit is like $150,000. So voila, Vancouver came up with a great solution at, at a reasonable price. So we want to re- replicate it. And that's with full utilities. The thing with a tiny home village is it only has u- electricity, basically. And then they have shared common facilities right. for you know uh, toilets and all that. So this is where it's a self-contained home. So how does that relate to the overall housing issue? Well, at the same time, it's all about ownership for home ownership. So we passed the Covenant Home Ownership Account program last year, uh, which is a big step forward. We allocated uh, $2 billion over the next 20 years to make up for the racist real estate covenants that were very prevalent around the state. And so we're going to provide all this down payment assistance to help people of color who were discriminated against. But then if they go out and then try to buy a home, hell, the average price in, in King County is almost 900000 I, I know. Even with down payment assistance, you, you can't make the math work. So we want to provide these cottages as starter homes, not just for the homeless, but for folks who want to own their first home. And so we're really excited about that, which is entirely different population, but you can see the connections across the field. What works for one group could also work for somebody else. Yeah, and it's just one more part of being on a spectrum between right. living in a tent and having a, the American dream. Right, exactly. It's that, and that American dream involves ownership. I ask everybody, would you rather rent a home or rather own it? Well, obviously, I haven't found anybody who would rather rent, but you know, I'm sure there's some. <laughs> But the reality is that uh, people want to own something, and so that's good. We ought to encourage that. Let me change topics right now and talk about something that I know a lot of people are going to be interested in, which is the fact that that you hold certainly the state record, maybe the national record, for the longest continuous service as Speaker of the House. And you voluntarily said, okay, I've done 20 years. I'm going to change my direction now and become a legislator working for the 160,000 people in my district and all the people in the state to pass laws. You spent 20 years helping other people pass their laws and pass ideas that you gave to them. Now you're working on your own. We've talked about some of them here. In addition to what we've talked about now, what kind of things have you got on the stove? Okay, well, um, I'm actually very honored to serve for 20 years as Speaker, and I wanted to step aside on a high note, so we were able to get the caucus up to 58 members, and we did a whole bunch of great stuff in uh, 2019, last year I was Speaker. Very proud of that. But now I'm really enjoying myself not being Speaker (laughs) and uh, because I can really focus on an issue. So let me give you an example that something we actually started in 2019 when I was still Speaker and got it passed, and now I'm pushing people, sorry, I have, I'm a pushy person, I hate to admit that, but at any rate, the, to do the next level. Okay, it's Workforce Education Investment Act. We passed it in 2019. I started working on that five years before. In 2014, I worked with a whole lot of people over those five years to get it queued up to pass, like uh, now Senator Drew Hansen and many other people as a team to pass the Workforce Education Investment Act, which it did involve increasing a a certain revenue stream, a revenue source to go into this account. And the first call on that account was to provide and guarantee and guarantee free college and university tuition for all low-income students. Okay. 
I get tired of hearing all these national Democrats say, oh, we want free college, free college. Well, they didn't do it. I said, well, we'll do it, and we'll start with the people who need it the most, the low income. So we now have the best financial aid program in the nation by far. It's first dollar in, and the Pell Grant at the federal level is on top of that to pay for living expenses. So it's just a great deal. So we need to build on that foundation in two ways. One is we need to move up the income scale, so increase the income that people would still be eligible for to cover more young people or uh, people of any age, basically, to get free higher education. Even people with what's called middle income now can't afford college. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. So that's one thing is to expand the people that are eligible, even though we're serving or we're helping (laughs) hundreds of thousands (laughs) of people already. And then the second one is that we have a major workforce shortage. The state of Washington right now is uh, being sued and also being fined for not doing certain state functions that we should be doing, whether it's Western State Hospital or the Truba decision or you name it. And we're being sued by a bunch of counties for not doing certain things the state ought to do. And the reason that we can't do it or haven't been doing it is because we don't have enough workers And so we're saying, okay, let's expand the Workforce Education Investment Act to include undergraduate and graduate degrees, free tuition for people who go into those targeted, critical, essential jobs, particularly in behavioral health, child development, et cetera. The first part is implemented. We passed it in 2019, free college tuition for all low-income students. Right. Now, the next thing we should do coming up, not this year so much because it's a short session, but next year we should have a proposal and a, and pass legislation to expand on that and to f- literally pay for people's education of any income if they agree to go into this uh, critical positions that we need, whether it's a, a psych nurse or a psychiatric social worker or a child development teacher or whatever. We have huge shortages, and yet we have the worst national, uh, horrible situation where people are going into huge debts to go through college, and particularly graduate degrees and all this. And that is uh, uh, horrendous. So let's just pay for it. It's just we know what uh, the categories of workers are that we're short of. Let's just pay for their education with the understanding then they work in us, our state to carry out these important professions that need uh, to be done. You have been instrumental in a program that at least has expanded the opportunities for people to learn how to be specialists in treating people with behavioral health problems, oh, absolutely. for example. Yeah, yeah. And it, this is just one strategy. We also uh, have uh, built facilities for, in, for example, in behavioral health. Uh, we funded a $250 million facility for the University of Washington up in North Seattle for a behavioral health teaching hospital. So we not only care for people who've got mental health issues or that kind of thing, but we're also then training the next generation of behavioral health workers. That's almost done. We we passed that in 2019. And now the building's actually almost done. It'll be opened up in May of this year. And voila, we got it done. We said that's a critical need. There was a great idea from a guy named Jurgen Unitzer at the University of Washington Psychiatry Department working with Rashi Gupta in the governor's office and all. And so, hey, guess what? It's done. Um, You're welcome to come to the grand opening, by the way. I'll be happy to. So then in that case, it wasn't just paying for the training. It was also we needed the facility to care for more people and then at the same time train the next generation. I want to change channels a little bit and, and say this. I know that you have been instrumental in working for people 
who suffer from mental illness and behavioral illness. I know, and you've been open about this, that your family, like my family and mm-hmm. like most families, uh, have been touched by this oh, yeah. condition. I know where you're going. Um, in my own family, my sister, when I have uh, a brother and two sisters. Uh, my brother passed away recently, but my uh, one of my uh, two sisters uh, has had significant mental uh, illness for m- many years. And uh, she's a rapid cycling bipolar situation there. And so I know from direct experience seeing her, in fact, now she's of older age. So my wife in particular has really risen to the occasion to help care for her. It's not easy and it's very time consuming, but you know, at least there's a family network to take care of her. And she's got a loving husband and they have a home. And uh, it, you know, that's a lot better than being out in the street. Yeah. And so uh, I see it in that way. And, you know, if you ask people, most families, in fact, pretty much everybody knows somebody in their family or their friends who've got significant uh, mental health issues. And in the old days, there was a real stigma. Oh, that's, we don't want to talk about that. You know, that's, that should be something to be ashamed of. Well, it's not to be ashamed of. It's just another medical condition and we ought to provide treatment and housing as appropriate if, if necessary to care for people. Because otherwise they go through horrible suffering. It's not their fault, and we ought to just help as best we can with treatment and some housing and things like that if, as necessary. And things have certainly improved since 1999 when oh, you yeah. became speaker. Oh, yes. At the same time, though, there's been this transition of moving people out of the state hospital into community settings. The problem is we haven't done enough at the community level for those folks, which is one of the reasons why I proposed and got past the Apple Health and Homes Act, because that cares for people who have mental illness as well as substance use disorders and provides the health care, but also the housing in those cases. Because in the case of my sister, like I say, she, she had a, a extended families caring for her. Plus, she was a teacher for many years, a great teacher, who also then had disability insurance through the school district, and she had Medicare to cover her health care, and she had a home that she bought with her husband. Much better situation than a lot of other people. I mean, the number of people who are dying on the streets this last year has been horrible. So we're making progress. At the same time, we have more people dying out there, and we got to keep working at it. I want to move farther back in your, your tenure here at the State House of Representatives and talk about the precursor to Apple Health and Homes, which was Apple Health. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was a baby of yours. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. I mean, who could be against health care for kids? I mean, really? Okay. Uh, I can think of some people. Well, no, I know the people. There was people on the other side of the aisle who vigorously objected to it because it was an entitlement. How dare we have an entitlement? Well, it's an entitlement for health care, for God's sake. For children. Uh, yeah, and on top of that, we started with the Apple Health for All Kids and very proud about it. And it was for all kids in the state. You know, I think it was about 15 years ago, we passed it, and we had huge support from all sorts of groups. And we also did something very progressive, but we did it and didn't make a big deal about it. And that was, we cover all the undocumented kids in the state with free health care. Now, if you start and saying, oh, we're going to extend state tax dollars to pay for undocumented health care, you get a different reaction. If you say, look, all we're doing is, it's health care for all kids. kids. People say, well, of course. Besides, those kids are in our community. They have not have enough documentation in terms of that. But we, we do pay for their health care because they're part of our community. And by the way, they're in our public schools. And in the state constitution, it says 
the state of Washington shall provide ample provision for all residents, which includes people who are here as immigrants. I mean, my own family, when they came in from Croatia, both my mom's side and my dad's side, I guarantee you they were not documented. <laughs> so you know, back then they said, come on in, although they didn't with some ethnic groups, obviously. Right. Um, and uh, so people came here because they had a, they wanted to be part of the American dream. So a lot of them showed up with no papers and no mu- not much money. And But that was right, and we ought to be encouraging people to come in our state who are contributing to the overall economy and the overall community. I have kept you here one minute past our appointment, oh. and I also know that you probably have six other things to do before Friday afternoon is over with. No, that's okay. Uh, we can talk all day as far as I'm oh, yeah, concerned. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. But I do want to give you the opportunity at this point to tell me what haven't we talked about here that you want to make sure that people know about you or your career. <laughs> I'm not used to talking about myself, Dan. You should I, know that by now. I know. For uh, someone should... with as much power as you have had for so long, you've got one of the smallest egos of anybody I know. Well, I have an ego. It's just restrained. Okay. And, you know, I can go through this list that you had typed up. I could talk for hours about each one of those things because that's what makes me motivated is it's it's a puzzle out there. You, 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 ha- you see a need. You see folks who are hungry or, or they're uh, low-paid workers and all that. And, okay, what do we do about it? They should get paid more and they ought to have a house, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's a lot of fun to see a need and then come up with an idea to solve that or address that need and then get it done. I mean, I'm very proud we have the highest minimum wage for workers in the nation and a whole long list of things that we are leading the nation on. But I don't talk about leading the nation. I talk about, isn't it great that low-wage workers got a big pay raise so that they can live as Washingtonians and uh, do better in life for their, themselves and their families? I mean, it's just— And it, for the state. Absolutely, absolutely. Because one of the proudest things I have uh, that I have experience in, uh, and you are part of this, Dan, is the, our theme when I was speaker was working together— one Washington. First of all, saying working uh, to the general public, they like legislators to actually be working <laughs> and working together. Right. And then one Washington, instead of dividing the state into eastern and western Washington or urban versus rural or this group versus that group. No, no we're, we're going to help everybody. Now, it'll take us a while to understand people's needs around the state, but that's critical. And so we carried out that philosophy uh, for many years, and I feel real proud about that. And, you know, it's nice to go around the state and actually see the stuff that we did, whether they're buildings or programs or other services that are really, really helping people. I'm going to take these programs that I typed up here, and for people listening, these will be in the show notes, whatever we don't get to talk (laughs) about, because it is a long list. (laughs) I want to ask you one more question. Mm -hmm. You grew up in East Bremerton. You grew up in a, in a working-class household. You had next-door neighbors and people that lived two blocks away. And you chose this path, and others chose a different path. And I'm wondering, why do you care about all this so well, much? Well, I think it's based on my own family experience. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad uh, worked at the shipyard in Bremerton, and my mom worked as a school cafeteria worker for many years. And uh, we'd have dinner together, you know, at the kitchen table. We didn't have a dining table. It was, you know, so we were fairly low income. 
But I learned from those experiences. My dad and mom were very active in the local schools because that was the thing they put top of the list. Because guess why? They didn't have an education. My dad had to go to work in the coal mines in Roslyn at age 12. Mm-hmm. Age 12. My mom never got through high school until when she was age 69, she went back to Green River Community College and got her high school diploma. I remember this. And it's very emotional. And so every night, or mostly every night, we'd have dinner together, and they'd talk about politics and uh, how's it going at school and all sorts of issues. And so my dad was very active in the labor movement as a worker, as a miner, and so he imbued me with the notion of collective action to stand up for yourself and caring about public things that benefit everybody, not just a few folks. And so that's, I'm just carrying out what I learned at the kitchen table. I would like to ask you to come sit around this table again in yeah, not fine. too distant future. This has been a really important conversation, in my opinion, and I think that's one that will be shared by the people listening to this. Representative Frank Chop, Speaker Emeritus Frank Chop, <laughs> thank you, Frank, for coming by, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm glad we got to do it with microphones in between yeah, us this time. Go. Thanks so much, Dan. I really appreciate this. You're great. Thank you. Take care. You too. That was pretty good, huh? Now you know more about Frank Chop and, by extension, about the Washington State House Democratic Caucus. If you want more conversations like this, I invite you to subscribe to Capital Ideas. You can do that at all the usual places or by visiting housedemocrats.wa.gov and hitting the media button up top. Don't forget, this is your state government. The more you know about how it works and who the players are, the better you can make it work for you, your family, and all 8 million of your fellow Washingtonians. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for listening, and don't be a stranger.